Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. We are continuing our series on a closer look at 12 ordinary men. Now, if you were not here with us for our last session, we're actually talking about the original, and I call them the original disciples of Christ, because all of us, as we know, are disciples, but we're gonna concentrate this particular series on the 12 original ones. Um, I'm going to try, I cannot (laughs) do any kind of review because I have so much material to go over and so many wonderful things to share with you that it just wouldn't even be right to spend five minutes on a review. So I'm just not going to. So um, where we left off before, we talked about the last, the actual last verse that we shared last time was in Luke's gospel, the sixth chapter. So I will do that just so that we can put everybody right in the same page. So it's Luke's gospel, the sixth chapter, verses 12 through 16, and I shared it with you out of the Message Bible. Now, I will say, and I have mentioned last time we were together, that it would be great for you to have pen and pencil or something to write on your smartphone, whatever, because I do have a lot of things that I wanna share with you. None of them are frivolous, it's all for a reason, and you might find it helpful um, to jot some of it down so that you can go home and you know further study it. But that's up to you. You might want to flip back and forth. It's entirely up to you. I'm just giving you that option. So Luke's Gospel, the sixth chapter, starting with verse 12 says, at about the same time he climbed a mountain to pray. He was there all night in prayer before God. The next day he summoned his disciples. From them he selected 12, he designated as apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And we talked about the last time we were together how Jesus's ministry was growing in large numbers. I mean, just imagine if, and and that's what we have to do when we're really studying this, we have to try to put ourselves in that time frame of, you know, you have this, this person who we believe is the Messiah. This is Jesus the Christ. We see the miracles that are happening wherever he is. Of course, you're gonna wanna be near that person. I mean, you know, just like, think about this. Just like when the apostle and Dr. Betty come, we're excited when we get to spend any time with them. And they're just, you know, Dr. Betty (laughs) and the apostle. I mean, we love them and we just wanna glean whatever we can from them. Well, just imagine Jesus the Christ in your midst walking around, talking, teaching, sharing, you know, creating, healing, where other people had no idea where that was gonna happen. You see all of this, of course, you're gonna wanna be around him, right? So what was happening in that time, multitudes of people were starting to follow him. Now, you know, we know just because we live in the city, or I don't, but you know, (laughs) being in the city, we know how if you have a multitude of people, that's not always an easy thing. 
you know, sometimes it can be actually somewhat dangerous. Like I know once I got stuck in the subway and I had to get what I call getting out of the hole and you have all of these people rushing for the exit. You've got to be actually very careful because there can, it can be a dangerous situation. So here he is and during this time in which he lived, remember, Everything they did, you know, they didn't have mass transit. So they were kind of like walking or, you know, they might have had, you know, small animals carrying them around. But it wasn't like they had any big, fast means of transportation. So if you have this massive amount of people trying to travel with you, it cuts down on how much traveling you really can do. And it ends up becoming more of a hassle and more of a challenge in the long run. So. This is where we're at in this part of the series. So I wanted to bring you back to that. So it became almost impossible for all of the people who believed in Jesus to actually follow him physically around wherever they went. It just couldn't happen. So it, and as I mentioned, it would become challenging for all the reasons that I gave you. So they, he needed and he decided that he wanted select certain men. And we talked about it last time, how he went and he prayed to the Father. He didn't just select these people like, you know, you see how they select people on a team when you're in school, you know, pick this one, pick that one. No, he really paid attention. And we talked about how he had divine wisdom when it came to his selection of people. He knew things about these men that nobody else even knew. And we, we talked about that a little bit last time. So the point was he selected them and he knew that these were the 12 men that were gonna be with him everywhere he traveled, all the time he wanted them to be with him. They were actually witnesses to all of his work and they ministered to his daily needs. Now Mark explains it this way. Turn with me to Mark's Gospel, and we're going to look at the third chapter, verses 13 and 14. Mark's Gospel, the third chapter, verses 13 and 14. If we look at it in the New King James Version, it says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed 12, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. The Amplified says, he went up on the hillside and called those whom he himself wanted and chose, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 disciples so that they could be with him for instruction and so that he could send them out to preach the gospel as apostles, that is, as his special messengers, personally chosen representatives. An interesting point is that these few ordinary, nothing special about them men, had a little more than 18 months training for the world-changing task set before them. Now think about whatever job you may be on and they put you in for training. I mean, you know, it's not like necessarily your job is going to be as monumental as what the job of these disciples had been. However, usually sometimes, depending upon what position you're trying to get to, you might have to have extensive training. And if you want to, you know, really rise in the company, it may take years for that to actually manifest itself. Well, they had just a little more than 18 months for this particular task, and they were called to this task. That's something that, I, see to me, if we really stop and think about what we're learning here, we are really learning how we are supposed to operate in church because they were the founders of the original early church. And 
They were called to this. Sometimes people, and this isn't in my notes, but whatever. Sometimes people want to just jump in and start doing a task just because they think it has a fancy title or they happen to like what they think is going to come with that. That's not what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to find out what God has called us to do. Because you see, when you walk in your calling, it's easy. It's not something that you have to get stressed over. You don't struggle with it because he's called you for that particular task. And we've all been called to something. We just need to remember that and operate in that and stop getting you know, touchy and trying to get this big title or power or whatever we think we're going to get. Well, anyway, they didn't do that. They knew that they were called to this task and they were born to do it. I mean, they really were. Just like each of us, we are all here for a specific purpose. None of us are accidents waiting to happen, but rather a force to be reckoned with. And for these men, there was no second string to carry out the task. There was no backup plan. See, that's interesting too, because in the world, we're kind of always thinking about a plan B or a backup plan. Even if you get go to school, you, well, let's go all the way back to secondary school. You know, and you're trying to get on whatever, the basketball team. They have junior varsity, then they have varsity. And you know, if all else fails and everybody in the varsity team just messed up, well, we could reach and get somebody from JV if we had to. Or we'll get the best from JV and stick them up on varsity. You know, we always have something else going. Or in our lives, we think of, well, if this doesn't work, well, we'll do plan B. Some people have plan B, plan C, and some people can go even beyond that. But the point is, that's not, really, if you're trusting God, get your instruction from him, and that is the plan. Do what he tells you to do, and that's it. So anyway, that's what they did. There was no plan B put in place if this whole thing that they were about to do, this task, happened to fail. So therefore, guess what? It could not fail. So in the natural, the founding of the church and the spread of the gospel was entirely dependent on these 12 ordinary men with all of their flaws and weaknesses. All of their training for this monumental task consisted of less time, think about that, less time than it takes to get an associate degree from a community college. However, they were taught by the master himself and Jesus knew what he was doing. He was relying on the Holy Spirit working in these men to accomplish his sovereign will. Think about that for a moment. Are we better than our Lord? Okay, y'all can answer that. <laughs> okay. Then why would we think for one second that we can do things on our own without the hope, the help rather of the Holy Spirit when he has been sent here to help us? I mean, why would we even think that? Turn with me to John's Gospel, and you guys know this scripture. But there's something I want to share with you about it, so that's why we're going to go over it. John's Gospel, the 14th chapter, verses 16 through 26. And I'm going to share it out of the Amplified. And I want you to truly listen, because the Amplified is filled with qualifiers. That's why I like it so much. And it starts with verse 16 saying this. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. King James says comforter, but check out what the Amplified says about this helper. 
The helper is our comforter, advocate, intercessor, counselor, strengthener, standby, to be with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive and take it, take it to its heart because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he, the Holy Spirit, remains with you continually and will be in you. Now, continually, what does that mean? It means that it's always, he's always there, right? Continually. It's not like he says, okay, I'm on vacation next week, so I'm out. Okay, continually. Very good. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. This is Jesus speaking. He's telling us he didn't leave us as orphans, comfortless, bereaved, and helpless. That's not how he left us. I will come back to you. After a, while, a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. On that day, when the time comes, you will know for yourselves that I am in my Father and you are in me, and I am in you. The person who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who really loves me. And whoever really loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. I will make myself real to him. Judas, not Iscariot, asked him, Lord, what has happened that you are going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, if anyone really loves me, he will keep my word, teaching, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling place with him. One who does not really love me does not keep my words. And the word teaching which you hear is not mine, but is the father's who sent me. I have told you these things while I am still with you. But the helper, comforter, advocate, intercessor, Counselor, strengthener, stand by the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, in my place to represent me and act on my behalf. He will teach you all things, and he will help you remember everything that I have told you. That explains thoroughly the office of the Holy Spirit and why Jesus left him for us at our disposal. But this was something that I've been meditating on, and this is why I brought this up, because I want to share this with you. You know, we sit and we look at Apostle Price and Dr. Betty, and you can think of all kinds of people in the body of Christ that you would consider to be very successful and prosperous and, you know, it just seems like everything they've got going their way. You know, they live in massive, gorgeous estates. You know, they don't have to be concerned about how are they going to pay their rent or if they have a house, are they going to have enough for oil? You know, they don't sit down and think about, oh my goodness, what am I going to do, you know, for this stack of bills? Because they already, you know, all that stuff is already paid. They have excess, you know, and we... Yeah, and some of the, I mean, you know, they fly the best, they wear the best, they eat the best, they have the best, as they should. But then we have to look at that thing and ask ourselves, why don't we? What is the thing that's missing here? 
because we already know scripture tells us that God is no respecter of persons. So if he's no respecter of persons, when we go to the airport, why are we sitting scrounging around to get into coach? Better yet, why aren't we to a point where we could be believing for our own plane? Okay, why is that? Or why is it that we can only maybe figure out a way to go out and have a steak dinner oh, once a month? Okay, opposed to if that's what we want to eat, just go out and be able to eat it. Why is that? Why don't we have so much abundance in our life that we can sit down and be a blessing to others because we are so abundantly blessed? Why is it that so many people in the body of Christ are standing against so many different things repeatedly over and over and over? You know, we have people who are constantly standing against financial challenges or they're looking for work or they can't hold on to jobs or they're looking for some place to live or they're actually many people don't want to say it, but they're looking for food to be able to eat on a consistent basis. What is the big gap difference? Why is that? So, because again, I ask all those hard questions. <laughs> and they're not really hard, but I always talk to the Lord. I'm like, explain it to me. I want to know the difference. This is what he said, and this is what I'm going to share with you. The difference is that the apostle and Dr. Betty and all of those people such as they are, they found the missing link. They did what the Holy Spirit told them to do, directs them to do continually. They don't discount it and put the Holy Spirit up on a shelf somewhere and only pull them down when they're in the midst of a real problem and they can't figure out what to do. Ooh, let me go and pray in tongues now and find out. No, 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 no. It is part of their life every single day. But here's the thing. By it being a part of their life every single day, they take this word that we read and they apply it to their lives because the Holy Spirit guides them. We already know, we read scripture that talks about how the word is what? It is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Sometimes we read stuff and we look at it like it's a nice Hallmark card, but it's not. It is real. You've got to take this word and apply it to your life, to every part of your life. When you do that, then you get to live the way that they live. So the point is, the Holy Spirit, we aren't orphans. The Holy Spirit was left here for us to use. We need to do it, be conscious of it, realize it, apply it, because you see, we should really be doing greater things than these 12 ordinary men, because the power of the Godhead lives within us. They didn't even have that. Okay, so, to them that have ears to hear, let them hear. Because that, to me, I, I thought that was really, I got a lot out of that. So these 12 men were instruments in God's hands to fulfill a mission that could not be stopped. Just as you and I can be God's instruments right now, we can do the same and even better. Our Heavenly Father gets pleasure Really, he gets pleasure in using ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. And I know that sounds glib, and it sounds like something probably on a greeting card, but let's see what the word says about it. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to look at chapter 1. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29. The New King James Version says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. The Amplifier breaks it down a little bit better and it says, but God has selected, here's the qualifier, for his purpose, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, revealing their ignorance. And God has selected for his purpose the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, revealing their frailty. God has selected for his purpose the insignificant base things of the world and the things that are despised and treated with contempt, even the things that are nothing, so that he might reduce to nothing the things that are, so that no one may be able to boast in the presence of God. Amen. The wisdom and power of the divine strategy encompassing the testimony of these 12 ordinary men belongs to the Most High God. Therefore, God deserves all the glory Amen. and praise now and forevermore. Amen. Jesus had multitudes of disciples, not just these 12, okay? We're part of the multitudes even now, 2,000 years ago, later, okay? We're still part of it. So he had multitudes and multitudes of disciples, but only these 12 that we're talking about were specifically called and chosen to the unique office of an apostle. They were given authority as unique ambassadors and spokesmen for Christ. As we mentioned in our last message, the word apostle in the Greek means messengers or sent ones. And the Greek word for it is actually apostoloi, which is the way it's spelled if you're taking notes is A-P, O-S-T-O-L-O-I. Awkward spelling. It's pronounced apostoloi, but it does mean messengers sent ones, okay? So here's the thing. Luke, now this is, well, you'll see. I'm just going to continue. Luke uses this term, apostles, in his writing, in his gospel, as well as throughout the book of Acts. He also reserves the term exclusively for the 12. So he's not using it any other way. Matthew refers to the 12 men as apostles only once. And he does that in Matthew's gospel, the 10th chapter and the second verse. So these are some of these verses you're going to start jotting them down because I'm going to kind of like rifle through them. So Matthew 10 verse 2 says, now the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and it goes on. The point of the matter is this is to prove that he does refer to them as apostles in the book of Matthew. Elsewhere, he mentions them as 12 disciples. In Matthew, if we are already in Matthew, if you look at chapter 11, verse 1, he says, 
Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. If we look at, because we're just going we're gonna stay in Matthew, if you look at the 20th chapter and the 17th verse, it says, now Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, and it goes on, if we look at it in Matthew 26, verse 14, then one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests. Matthew 26, just drop down to the 20th verse. When evening had come, he sat down with the 12. Notice he's not calling them apostles. He's calling them the 12 or disciples. If we look at it in the 47th verse of Matthew 26, it says, and while he was speaking, behold Judas, one of the 12, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. And all of those, by the way, because I should have told you, were in the, happened to be in the New King James Version of Scripture. Now, in Mark's Gospel, we only see the term apostles used once again. He uses it one time, too. And he uses it once in Mark's Gospel, the sixth chapter, verse 30. And Mark says this, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And all of these things that I'm sharing with you are going to be in the New King James, okay? Because it's just easier. Um, he, other than that, he always refers, this is Mark I'm talking about. Other than that, he always refers to the apostles simply as the 12. If we look at Mark 3, the third chapter, and the 14th verse, it says, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. If you flip over to the fourth chapter and the 10th verse of Mark, it says, but when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parable. Mark's gospel, the sixth chapter and the seventh verse says, and he called the 12 to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. Mark, the ninth chapter and the 35th, Fifth verse says, and he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Mark the 10th chapter, verse 32. Now they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Mark the 11th chapter and the 11th verse. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. <laughs> and this, you might be like, why are you telling me all this? First of all, I'm doing it because I did and you don't have to. So you should be blessed that I did all the research. You could just jot it down. Okay, Mark's Gospel, the 14th chapter and the 10th verse. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. Mark 14, and this is all in the 14th chapter, real easy. Go down to the 17th verse. In the evening, he came with the 12. The 20th verse. He answered and said to them, it is one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. 
And Mark 14, 43 says, and immediately while he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. John, who uses the word apostle just once in John 13, 16, in most English versions, however, in scripture, you will find it says instead of that, it will say, he who is sent. Um, if you look at it in the New King James Version, it says, most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Just like Mark, John always refers to the band of men as the 12. Um, if you look at it in John, the sixth chapter and the 67th verse, it says, then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? If you look at it in the same chapter, verses 70 to 71, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the 12. They talk about 12. You see the significance. Everything is the 12, 12, 12. We're going to find out even more about that. If you also look at, you're still in John, Look at the 20th chapter of John in the 24th verse. It says, now Thomas, called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. These 12 ordinary men were called to a specific office. In the book of Acts and in all the Gospels, the term apostle almost always refers to that office and the 12 men who were specifically called and ordained to the office. You may ask, why am I telling you all this? It may seem very boring to you that I quoted all that different scripture. However, it is setting the stage and giving you a deeper understanding of these men. And that is something that is going to pay off in the long run. Now, if I were to ask you about the four gospels, I'm sure that you're all familiar with them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, we learned that in the earliest of, of church schools, okay? You do not have to raise your hands, but some of you may have at one point thought that these four men were part of or were four of the original disciples. In fact, there are a lot of Christians who actually do think that. However, only two of them were. To provide you with a little bit of background, because I want to make sure we're all on the same page, a doctor, a fisherman, a tax collector, and another one who was just a teenager when he heard the Savior speak, that's who Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually were. We recognize their names right off the bat immediately. Their names are attached to the first four books of what's considered the New Testament, even though when you really study, you know that the New Testament really starts after Acts, that Romans is the first book. However, if you just, you know, generically look somewhere where people really don't study, or they don't know, I don't want to say they don't study, they don't know, they consider the four Gospels the beginning of the New Testament. But we know different because we've been taught so well here. But anyway, the most important of all, their writings always, almost always, are describing the mortal life of Jesus and the things that he said. The first four books, known as the Gospels, 
It's easy to imagine why these books were written and why they've always been so important. Can you imagine, and we talked about this before, how exciting it must have been for people who were just learning about Jesus to have someone you know, read the things that he said or did. I mean, it's, it's exciting. It's exciting for us all of these years later. You can imagine it was exciting for them. These books have always been precious, and they always will. You know, they really always will. Matthew and John are the two original 12 apostles. They were with the Savior often as he taught. But who were Mark and Luke? And how did they come to write about the Savior's life and ministry? I mean, you know, that's a good question. So let's break it down a little bit. Matthew, let's talk about him. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail right now, but Matthew was a publican or a tax collector before he was called one of the Lord's apostles. Because of that profession, we can guess that he had to have some education. Okay, He might not have been highly educated, but he had to have some education, and we can pretty much know that he had to know how to read and write, probably even in more than one language, including Greek. Okay, He also had to know some type of arithmetic. I mean, he was a tax collector. I mean, that's just common sense. He had to. <laughs> we saw and heard many wonderful things that he, you know, he saw and heard while he was with Jesus, and he recorded that. We can read that. We know that, okay? And it's likely, most likely, that he wrote down some of the sayings of Jesus as notes in some form of a journal, you know, what we would call a journal. I mean, back then, I guess it was a scroll or whatever, because later, I'm pretty sure that these notes probably helped him when he wrote and remembered about all the teachings of Jesus. So we're going to put a pen in there when it comes to Matthew, because we're going to spend more time talking about him. Now, Mark. Mark was much younger than the other writers, okay, of these four Gospels. His mother was a prominent follower of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Acts, the 12th chapter, and we're going to look at verse 12. Acts, the 12th chapter, verse 12. And I'm going to read it first at the New King James then the Amplified, then the Message, and I'm doing it that way on purpose because I want you to see how these three translations, each one gives us a little bit more information than the one before. So if we read it in the New King James, it says, so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. That's out of the New King James. If we look at Acts 12, 12, out of the Amplified, it says, when he realized what had happened, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many believers were gathered together and were praying continually and had been praying all night. Now, actually, according to, and, if, and you can jot this down, because I'm not going to go back to that, but according to Colossians 4.10, this Mary that we're speaking of here was the aunt of Barnabas. So her son, John, Mark, and Barnabas were actually cousins. I know. We could, <laughs> this could be something where we probably would have to draw a family tree all over this just to try to connect the dots. But that's just a little interesting tidbit if you're interested, OK? Now we're going to read the same verse of scripture out of the message, which breaks it down so nice. Still shaking his head, amazed, he went to Mary's house, 
the Mary who was John Mark's mother. Now I'm gonna pause right here. See, the part that I find so interesting here, we all along just assumed Mark, that was his name, just Mark, okay? We never thought that his name was John Mark. His surname was Mark. However, when he wrote the Gospel of Mark, he used his surname. There were all kinds of different things that happened in scripture and you really need to break it down to be able to understand it. So anyway, picking back up here. Um, the house was packed with praying friends when he knocked on the door to the courtyard. A young woman named Rhoda came to see who it was. But when she recognized his voice, Peter's voice, she was so excited and eager to tell everyone Peter was there that she forgot to open the door and left him standing in the street. So this lets us know that her house, meaning John Mark, his mother, it was in Jerusalem, was used as a meeting place for the other disciples. Because keep in mind, they had to have some place. They couldn't just all be wandering around on the road. So they had to have somewhere to go. So her house was one of those particular places they could go. And from this verse, we also learn, of course, that her son's full name is, like I said, John Mark. Now, Mark was also a follower of Jesus Christ, but would likely have been in his teens when the Lord was in Jerusalem. He may have seen and listened to the Savior on occasion, but not as much as everybody else, because he was a teenager. After the resurrection, as the Savior's message was beginning to spread, Mark traveled with the Apostle Paul. He then accompanied the Apostle Peter to Rome and stayed with him while he was in prison. Mark is also known, this is interesting, he's also known as Peter's interpreter, both in speech and writing. Now why is that? As a fisherman from Galilee, Peter may not have spoken Greek fluently, so Mark interpreted for him. I thought that was an interesting little tidbit. In his book, Mark wrote down the observations and memories of Peter, one of the original apostles. Mark's book reflects Peter's interest in spreading the gospel among the Gentiles. Now let's talk about Luke. Luke is an interesting writer because he did not know Jesus Christ personally. He became a follower after the Lord's death when Paul taught him the gospel. Luke had been a physician, but he left that profession to travel with Paul. He had the opportunity to talk with many of the, the apostles as well as others who were eyewitnesses to special events or moments in the Lord's life. In the first few verses of his book, Luke says that he is going to write the things that eyewitnesses and other teachers of the gospel had to say about the Savior. Apparently, he had the opportunity to talk to many who were present when the Savior taught or performed miracles. One of the most amazing stories Luke wrote about was the birth of Jesus. Now, it has been stated that Luke probably got his information about Jesus' birth from Mary herself. Now, who were the other people Luke interviewed about Jesus Christ? The list would have been long. Many of the people who knew the Savior would have still been alive and would have remembered some important times in their lives. Paul mentions that about 500 people saw Jesus after his resurrection. 
and that most of them were still alive when he was writing to the Corinthians. John. John, or John the Beloved, as he was known, served as one of the apostles. His book was probably written last, as John seems to have already read the other Gospels before he wrote his own book. Often, instead of telling his version of an event or a parable the others had already written about, he writes about things the other writers did not include. Also, John's Gospel includes the testimony of John the Baptist. It seems likely that he had some of the writings of John the Baptist. Now, right after the Lord's death and resurrection, and for many years afterward, each of the books written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was a separate item written on a separate scroll and copied over and over. The individual books weren't put together into the New Testament until several hundred years after they were written. I thought that was interesting too. <laughs> I mean, look, if nobody else is getting anything out of this, I certainly am. <laughs> okay, so we've just used the term apostle frequently so far. Remember I mentioned that the apostle Paul was likewise called to a special apostolic office. I said that last time we were together. He was an apostle to the Gentiles. Now I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about Paul because our study is really not about him. However, I do want us to be clear when using the term apostle. So turn with me to Romans, the 11th chapter and the 13th verse. And again, all of these scriptures I'm giving to you out of the New King James Version. So Romans 11:13 says, for I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. First Timothy, the second chapter and the seventh verse. First Timothy two, verse seven says, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Then just flip over to 2 Timothy, and if you look at the first chapter and the 11th verse, that's 2 Timothy, the first chapter, verse 11 says, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. These scriptures show us that Paul's apostleship was a unique calling. Paul was not converted until after the ascension of Jesus, and that's in Acts 9, okay? When you read the book, or when you read the chapter of Acts 9, that's the story of when he was on his road to Damascus. He was there because he really wanted to just tear up anybody who was, you know, really carrying the gospel message. He was all about you know, just getting at them and destroying them and all the rest of that. And on his little road to Damascus, he heard this voice from heaven, the voice of Jesus, who was asking him, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this? And then he had his conversion 
moment of realizing, oh my goodness. I mean, can you imagine we're walking to go get on the C train <laughs> and then all of a sudden you hear Jesus speaking to you. Do you not think you're going to stop everything you're doing, make a mid-course correction and totally change your life to whatever he's telling you to do? Okay, well, that's all he did. <laughs> I mean, makes total sense to me. Um, so anyway, Paul was not converted until after the ascension of Jesus and he was an apostle considered born out of due time. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 10. And in the New King James Version, if we start with verse 7, it says, After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And if we look at it in the message, it says, the first thing I did was place before you what was placed so emphatically before me, that the Messiah died for our sins, exactly as scripture tells it, that he was buried, that he was raised from death on the third day, again, exactly as scripture says, that he presented himself alive to Peter, then to his closest followers, and later, to more than 500 of his followers all at the same time, most of them still around, although a few have since died. That he then spent time with James and the rest of those he commissioned to represent him. And that he finally presented himself alive to me. It was fitting that I bring up the rear. I don't deserve to be included in that inner circle as you well know having spent all those early years trying my best to stamp God's church right out of existence. But because God was so gracious, so very generous, here I am. And I'm not about to let his grace go to waste. Haven't I worked hard trying to do more than any of the others? Even then, my work didn't amount to all that much. It was God giving me the work to do, God giving me the energy to do it. So whether you heard it from me or from those others, it's all the same. We spoke God's truth and you entrusted your lives. That is precious because think about that, okay? Were we not saved by his grace? Were we not in the same position as Paul sat here and wrote? And look at what he does with our lives and all that he can do if we just yield ourselves to his guidance and allow him to use us and be his instruments. Praise God. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212 749 9323. 
If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 9.45 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Thanks again for listening. And remember, walk by faith, not by sight.